This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I want to get to this uh, to start. If you missed it yesterday, um, a deal with Google and the federal government. And a lot of people have weighed in on this one. I'll give you some of the specifics of it because we sure didn't know about it coming on our show yesterday. Um, but I heard it right at the end of Alex Pearson's show. Uh, I know Kelly Cotrera delved into it. But a deal, this has made international news. It's like one of the top 10 stories on the BBC's website this morning that Google and Canada find a deal that averts a news ban over what's called the Online News Act. And you may have noticed um, that Google had vowed, made it a big pledge, dug in their heels to get rid of links to news in Canada. Uh, and that was going to take effect on December 19th. Meta already blocking news on their platforms. Full disclosure, we have a 640 Toronto Instagram account. But I bet you you can't get to it. I sure can get to it to see a lot of our news content. We'd love to be able to share that with you. Right now, Meta, which owns uh, you know, Facebook uh, and, and is Meta, and Meta owns Instagram. Meta owns WhatsApp as well um, as a communication device. But Meta's blocking news on those particular platforms. Um, I, I see it both ways on this. I'm glad that the Trudeau government stood up and did something, but I think it was wrongheaded. They're getting praise from some corners. You might think yeah, the usual corners are praising Justin Trudeau and the liberals, and the usual corners are criticizing them. Something did need to be done. They, they did need to, quote unquote, pay a, just at least more of a portion of what we'd call a fair share. And the Online News Act, though I think flawed as a document, I don't tend to dig too deeply and read pages and pages and pages, but I've read enough of the Online News Act to ask, what's that doing in there? Doesn't doesn't that defeat the purpose? Isn't this contradictory to something else in, in the agreement? They aimed this law right at these two big companies, Google and Meta. Nothing to do with Twitter, because Twitter hasn't banned any information. I'm going to get to Elon Musk a little later in the hour as well. But the agreement announced yesterday decided Google should pay $100 million Canadian annually, and that's indexed to inflation uh, for you uh, economic folks out there, to news outlets. Now, I know what you're thinking. Who's going to get the $100 million? Is it just going to be, if you will, the big boys and girls? And I think the big boys and girls who employ a lot of people, keep the lights on, pay people's benefits, should get a big chunk of that. Brady, you would say that. You work for one of the big boys and girls in in chorus entertainment. But I would make the case that I think Google has a better shot at figuring out who should get the $100 million than the liberal government does. I'd like them to be, as as much as I would say they needed to do something, $100 million is better than nothing. Google was, by the way, at the table making offers about a year ago at this time, and it felt like the federal liberal government was very much talk to the hand, we're not interested. So the liberals will paint this as a win. And it's not a loss, that's for sure. They're getting something back. But I think there's a lot of skepticism about whether the federal government gets to distribute this money or not. And that's what's going to be interesting. Can this keep, it's almost too late, right? Can this keep some local newspapers alive who are shutting down? Can this help um, conventional television? What about people who are, operating independently who are trying to spread news and, and, and do the right things and start as more of a grassroots, uh, you know, foundation up level. I don't know how they're going to do it. And so the concept of distributing these funds to these eligible news agencies is going to end up being really confusing. What I know is we have to have a news ecosystem. We have to, 
Um, newsrooms are, have been closing. They've been laying off workers. This is a little bit different, right? We give you opinion. We give you live live information. I'm gonna. I'm a big radio fan. You can imagine, but I would make the case that people have been trying to kick radio to the curb for a long, long time. This is gonna come in, and radio is gonna be diminished. That'll come in, and it'll be diminished. It's still live. It works when it's live. It works when it's local. It works now when it's it's news mixed with opinion. As far as talk radio is concerned, everybody's got every song on their iPod right now. Bottom lining it, um, this is a healthy story. I find a ton of positives in it. But I really hope the $100 million is properly distributed. This is not, by the way, anything about being anti-CBC, but I'm conscious already that they get tremendous government funding and have a tremendous infrastructure that many don't have. So what happens there? That's what I think is going to be really, really interesting. Let me shift to this here. We had Stephen Lecce, the education minister of the province, on the show yesterday, and all, um, all, all we talked about, well, we talked about several different things, but one of the things we ended on was very much the issue of the Toronto District School Board. And they're not the only school board doing this, but just being accountable to parents and informing them. We had a mom on the show, and she and another mom, as part of a parent council, had raised a fuss because their, their kids were coming home. This woman had two nine-year-old twin daughters, and they were coming home and telling them about swastikas in the bathroom and threats at school. And the information wasn't coming from the school. And I think you'd agree. We don't need the schools to tell us every little thing that happens. But when teachers are placed on leave, you should communicate with parents. When uh, tensions are higher, you've got, a, you've, you've got an ability now via email you know, to send things out to people. We used to see it letters all the time from school. There's a there's a health issue. Someone has head lice. Like you'd get every possible communique you could when you were in elementary school or high school. So I asked Stephen Lecce about this yesterday. Here's some of that conversation. Last week, I know uh, 2,000 parents signed a letter to you alleging incidents of anti-Semitism in Toronto schools. We had uh, a concerned parent from a parent council on earlier just for our audience and for you for clarification. I want you to hear just a quick clip of Livy Jacobs. We were told at that time that their hands are tied, that there's a new procedure that the TDSB has uh, Im- implemented, I suppose. Uh, but it's a procedure, not a policy. And my understanding is that a policy is something that gets voted on, for example, by the trustees. Uh, but this is a procedure, so there's a different protocol to passing it. I mean, Stephen, the headline in the Toronto Star is pretty simple. Parents stunned to hear about swastikas at TDSB school from their children and non-administrators. And they love this principle. The woman who called me said that. And she said, the principal says, my hands are tied. I can't let you know that these things are happening in the schools. What's wrong with the system when this transpires? Yeah, I mean, I read that article as well. And I've, of course, been following this issue at TDSB. You know, boards have different communication protocols on these incidents. So what TDSB is doing is not necessarily what the rest of Ontario is doing. Uh, each board comes up with a communication protocol that works for their parents. But I think as a default, I think transparency is important. If you know, we've got to shine light on this, these hateful acts if we seek to change cultures and the hearts and minds of our kids. And that's why I've, I've said to school boards, immediately following the October 7th uh, terrorist attack, we need to <clears throat> lean into the Holocaust education. We need to be transparent with parents and we need to be zero tolerance on children or staff who uh, propagate, you know, racism or anti-Semitism, most specifically, that is very much sharply on the rise, and it's a great threat to our country, to our democracy. It's it's very troubling. So for that parent that called, 
um, I can appreciate that frustration. And I think what I can simply let her know is at the highest levels, we have to hold board directors, chairs, and everyone in between. But we expect them to act when they see hate. We expect them to intervene with sanction and accountability on anyone that, um, that allows these types of, uh, you know, the age-old tropes of, of anti-Semitism to exist and fester within our schools. It's just it's not going to be allowed. These are big problems, and they're big problems right now. Again, I think we're living in heightened times to where parents just want to know more. We don't need to know everything. Our kids will tell us a lot of what's going on anyway, we hope. But we've got to do a little bit better than the TDSB. I, I give them no credit for accountability, no credit for transparency, because it's just happened over and over again with this particular board. When you just say the four letters, TDSB, the phone lines light up, our texts get busy, and nobody buys the concept that they take allegations of hate and racism very seriously. No one buys the idea that they're not tying up hands of principals and vice principals, keeping their parents involved. And it all comes from the top. And it's a problem. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Meaning to get to this. And it involves your health care, maybe your family physician, and maybe um, basically a cry for help, job action to draw attention to the crisis of just how many family doctors we have. I want to bring on a regular guest on the show. He's Dr. Sahail Gandhi, who's a family physician and the former president of the Ontario Medical Association. It's good to have you back on, doctor. I appreciate the time. Uh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. What's, uh, what's this all about? It's concerning when we see job action and physicians in the same sentence. Uh, absolutely. It's a real tragedy that things have come to this. And I, I think it's just a, a very, very disappointing set of circumstances uh, that it's coming to this. Um, what, what seems to be happening, because I, I'm not one of the leaders of the group, uh, to be clear, mm-hmm. but what seems to be happening is that a lot of family physicians have been scaling back their hours or have been reducing their work because they've been spending so much time doing administrative work. Like I personally, about a year ago, uh, cut about a half a day a week from seeing patients simply because the administrative burden had gotten so high and the workload in other areas of family practice had gotten so high. Uh, so all of these physicians who do this kind of work, it, 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 at the end of the day, it's a form of job action. It hasn't been called that, right? When a physician says, you know, I can't work in the office anymore, I'm going to scale back or I'm going to look mm. at retiring early or, you know, all of those are individual job actions. They just haven't been called that. And I believe what the group is saying is that, you know, rather than do this all individually and in an uncoordinated manner, maybe, maybe if if we try and do this in a more coordinated manner, we can get the, the government to actually do something or all levels of government to actually put some emphasis on on making the changes that we all know need to be made. Is this just about attrition? Is this just about older doctors uh, deciding to retire and all of a sudden, after 25, 30 years of somebody being a family doctor, families are on the hunt for one? Or is this about younger people either deciding not to go into the industry or deciding not to even go to medical school? Is it more one than the other? I think it's a little of all of the above. Uh, There certainly are doctors who have gotten quite frustrated over the years. Um, But there's also, you know, in my community, we've been lucky to have had recently a couple of new uh, family physicians come to the area. And and it's disheartening talking to them because they're saying, you know, I I love looking after my patients, but this is not what I expected. I didn't expect to be doing all this other work. And I didn't really expect uh, Mm -hmm. all of the administrative burden. And I didn't really expect all of this other stuff 
uh, to take up so much time. Um, I know you follow the news cycle and you know I do. It it drives me crazy. Healthcare has been really in the last several months. Just put to the back, back page. I know we're all watching what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, the, the political scandal de jure in the province seems to be about Greenbelt land. But my heavens, there's such important things with health care. Are you noticing that that we're just we're just it's just not getting enough uh, it's not getting enough airspace is it? You know, it just seems like there doesn't seem to be the the desire to pay the attention to healthcare that there should be, um, and it just seems to be that every time you read a story about um, how people can't find a family doctor or how you know there's a story out of even BC like this is cross Canada right yeah. about how a lady had to go to the United States to get cancer treatment and all this it, it just seems that all levels of government aren't taking action they're they're referring to committees they're um circling you know through discussion papers but no one's actually no one's actually doing something right and like even simple changes can't can, don't seem to be happening yeah dr sahel gandhi is our guest on toronto today uh joining us on 640 toronto doctors are forbidden from going on strike in ontario but nothing stops them is my understanding from reducing their hours and they could slide those hours down to a really you know tight windows to see patients is that is that kind of the concept uh, yeah absolutely like you know i don't think any doctor wants to go on strike uh, doctors just won't do that like if our patients are there and sick in front of us we're going to try and help them um, but at the end of the day doctors have to try and look after their own health as well a little bit and you know certainly the reduction in hours that i did about a year ago uh, was because I was taking so much work home, so that was just you know a mental thing that I. W- had to... What did you change from to hours so, wise? Yeah, so I, I cut half a day a week uh, from looking after patients, and I spend that half a day going over lab reports and doing forms for insurance companies and uh, taking care of sick notes and you know all the all the other stuff that I have to do. Yeah, I mean you said it before on our show: the paperwork, uh, the faxing back and forth, the forms. My heavens, there has to be a better way to do this. And we just seem like, like I'll use the word, paralyzed to figure out what the best method is to, to cut down the paperwork for people well, like well, yourself. It's the desire. It's the desire. Yeah. Like, you know, a very simple change. Just this, this, the simple change. Right now, I'll get a form from an insurance company saying, you know, your patient's on disability. You have to fill out this form or we won't pay them. Oh, by the way, the patient has to pay the for, for the form, right? So, and that's apparently legal. And, you know, I'm not going to charge a patient who's on disability and barely getting by the 40 or 50 bucks it costs to fill out the form, right? Just make that illegal, right? Make it illegal for an insurance company to do that. That's one simple quick change. All of a sudden, I'll either get paid or the insurance company will say, oh, crap, we can't bother. We can't pay this all the time. We'll stop harassing the doctor. Either one of those I'm happy with, right? And it's a simple change, and people won't even do that. Yeah, it, it it just makes, oh my goodness, it's so frustrating because, like you said, it, none of this is reinventing the wheel. None of this yeah. even takes a ton of financial infrastructure to say, let's do it this way instead of that way, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and even those simple changes don't happen. So mm. that's that's why this group is so frustrated. And, they say, and, and I think they said, we're going to be doing this anyway. Like, we're going to be cutting back. We're going to be scaling back. Rather than do it individually so no one hears about it, let's do it in some sort of coordinated manner so at least we're bringing some attention to the problem. But they're just, they're, they're tired of waving their arms in the air and saying, hey, over here, we, we need help and we need we need better structure from, from government. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they need uh, all sorts of support. Dr. Gandhi, thanks very much for the time this morning. Love our conversations. I always learn something and appreciate you coming on.
You're welcome. Thank you for having me. There's Dr. Sahel Gandhi joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, there's a by-election in Kitchener Centre tonight that is really intriguing. Uh, the NDP owned this seat, and they've owned it uh, quite successfully for um, uh, a few elections in a row, two actually, 2018 and 2022. But Laura May Lindo has left politics. She was over 40 percent um, on the vote the last two elections out in 18 and 22. And um, we'll see if indeed the NDP candidate's going to get uh, a push over the top or whether indeed that seat can be taken away. That and a few other issues. We bring on the official leader of the opposition in Ontario. She is NDP leader Marit Stiles. It's great to have you on the show as always. Thanks very much for the time. Oh, it's great to be here. Why don't we start there in Kitchener Centre? What are the uh, uh, who is your candidate and, and what are the odds of keeping that seat? Yeah, our candidate is Debbie Chapman. She's been a city councillor uh, in that riding for five years. She's been a real champion for affordable housing, a hard worker. And I, but I think it's going to be a, a tough, tight race tonight. I really do. Um, and uh, but we never take these things for granted. So we've been working really hard. And uh, hope that uh, we can count on the votes of the people of Kitchener Center. I noticed the Green Party candidate in 22, Mart, got 12, almost 13 percent. So there's there's an element of a, of a split vote. Is that at all concerning that somebody could sneak up the middle if, if the Green candidate does really well there tonight? It's possible. I mean, for sure, we, what we've been telling people is, you know, at the end of the day, the fight is between the NDP and uh, Doug Ford and the Conservatives. And so uh, we really need to um, to have a strong official opposition at Queens Park, we're the only party that has party status. Uh, so I, yeah. you know, you know, I I get along very well with Mike Schreiner uh, and the Greens, but I got to tell you, I think in this case, a vote for the NDP is an assurance that mm. we can continue our fight uh, against Doug Ford and the Conservatives and hopefully uh, defeat them in 2026. Mark Stiles, our guest, 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. So you got the news Monday, as did the rest of us, about a deal uh, between the province and the city. You live in Toronto proper. Are there good things about the deal for the city of Toronto? I'd ask you that. Yeah, you know, I would say there, there are some definitely some good things here. Uh, this is historic. Uh, Toronto needed a new deal uh, because you know, over many years we've seen conservative and liberal governments like download a lot of responsibilities onto the city of Toronto. Uh, that meant that Toronto was kind of was ending up coming very up very short on other services like shelters and transit and housing. And so I think this deal is, is good for the city of Toronto. Um, and I think what Mayor Chow managed to do was uh, to pull one over on the, the premier a bit here. This premier has been obsessed. I mean, I, I cannot understand why uh, with putting this 95 year long lease with a private spa in place uh, at Ontario Place. And he was intending to all along. I mean, we knew he had the legislation ready. They, the government was going to expropriate that little sliver of land from the city of Toronto, build this luxury spa. That's what they were always going to do. And the fight for that uh, against the Ontario Place uh, luxury spa was always going to be at Queen's Park anyway. I know uh, somebody kind of uh, came at you on social media. That happens to the best of us, right? And uh, and somebody came at you and said, hey, wait a minute. You know, you and Olivia Chow are, uh, are, are kind of pals as it is. Are you critical of, of any way Olivia Chow just kind of kind of, I don't know, laid down, rolled over, may, may have been the terms about Ontario Place. Do you think she had a choice? No, I, I really don't think she had a choice here. I mean, I think what she did is she kind of played uh, the premier on this one because he's blinded clearly by his obsession with trying to build this luxury spa down there, which, again, I don't understand this. 
It's not something anybody is really asking for. Uh, but the province can expropriate and rezone that land without the city's approval. Uh, they had the legislation ready to go. Uh, they were always going to do that. They were never going to let the city of Toronto uh, fight them on that. Mm. And they've got legislation now in front of us that does that. And it even goes further, you know, it, it, it actually changes the rules and the laws so that Therma doesn't have to follow the same laws and rules as anybody else uh, for this 95-year uh, lease they've got. And uh, and it's really, at the end of the day, I th- I, I'm calling this Doug Ford's vanity project. I don't know who in this province wants this luxury spa on public land, but for some reason, he seems pretty obsessed. Do you worry, and I noticed it during the mayoral election, um, and, and I think it's a call that, that you, it's an important call for your party here. How much political capital and time do you spend on it? Because you made the point, and I agree with the point, and I think it's communicated well. People are talking about rent and sending their kid to university and their mortgage and the prices at the grocery store. So do you risk, and health care, we don't talk about health care enough, do you risk spending extra time on Ontario Place that all, all these issues, if, if those issues are important to other people, Ontario places way down their list, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the point we're trying to make here with the government is people that I'm talking mm-hmm. to all over the province, and you hear this every day, yeah. uh, we are in a cost of living crisis. People can't afford their rents or their mortgages, their groceries. Uh, they're worried about whether they can find a family doctor. And this is this is literally what this government is putting before us in the legislature. This is their obsession. And it is not in keeping with where people's priorities are. And the reason I'm fighting it so hard is is not just because of that, because obviously like we're continuing to push them on rent control and all kinds of other things, but it's because they're going to spend at least six hundred and fifty million dollars uh, to to subsidize this 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 private company project. And then they're going to uh, give them a 95-year lease. And I think the deal, frankly, stinks. Uh, it yeah. smells really bad. So I'm trying to get to the bottom of it because just like the green belt grab, I think we can probably, we'll probably find out that there's there's something else behind this and the people of Ontario need to know. Mart Styles, our guest on Toronto today. Before we go, I know you're hoping to celebrate uh, a by-election victory tonight and tomorrow. Yeah. Someone will be celebrating becoming the new Ontario Liberal leader. I want you to hear this. We had Bonnie Crombie on the show last week, and I asked her about your party and the positive direction you've been having. Here's what she said. I do, and I intend to take them as well. I know they're having their own issues right now, um, and they've got uh, a lot of work to do. But listen, I'm focused on the prize, and that is Doug Ford, and we are going to win in 2026. We're going to have a well-financed campaign, and every seat is up for grabs. I'll set that up by asking if she needed to take some NDP seats as well uh, as conservative seats to get the liberals where they need to go. How much of a threat will the Liberal Party be after Saturday, regardless of who wins to you? Well, you know, I, I mean, I understand they have to they have to have, be optimistic at this time, but they're way behind. Right. They've gone through two elections now where they haven't even been able to make party status. They still don't have enough seats to be considered an official party in the legislature. So they have a very long road ahead. Uh, the NDP, uh, we're a strong official opposition. Uh, we're very focused, as, as she said, we're focused on the prize, too. And my focus throughout this entire last almost year that I've been now in this position has been on holding uh, Doug Ford and the Conservatives mm. to account, building up uh, a plan and positive solutions for the people of Ontario and mm. preparing to defeat him. And, and I think the road for us is a lot shorter to get to that. And that's what my focus is.
Mart Stiles joining us, uh, official leader of the opposition, Ontario NDP leader. Thanks for being on the show as always. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Greg. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. If you heard about this yesterday, there is a deal that may get uh, the Online News Act, not necessarily scrubbed, but the federal government and Google and these big tech companies, um, maybe uh, there's peace in our time between these two. Google was going to take Canadian news content totally out of its search engines around December 19th. Bill C-18, highly controversial, uh, is meant to come into effect then. And yesterday, so it would seem, a deal where Google will compensate news organizations with $100 million annually, and that gets indexed to inflation, so it may end up being more than that. But some people breathing a little bit easier. We'll see exactly what happens and what the revenue uh, is, is going to do and who it ends up saving. Uh, Mohit Rajans is our uh, friend, media expert as well, and he joins us now on uh, on uh, the line at, on, on Toronto Today. What do you make of the deal? Are you surprised it actually got done with all the contentious, tough talk between the two the two groups, the government and these big tech corporations? You know, I do think. First of all, thank you for having me. Yeah. I do. I do believe that this is a little bit of a headline grabber. I think this is a public relations move where uh, tech and media want to show that they can play well together. If you break down what C18 was going to do for the average user, that meant that when they went to Google, which was over 90% of us Canadians, slowly they would start to see Canadian news being delisted when they went to search. Now, we are creatures of habit. We go to Google, we look at the first three links, and that's how news and information comes to a lot of us. And so that, that alone triggered a bunch of information between people that said, well, wait a minute, there's a structural problem that we can't avoid. We need to be balanced with each other and understand each other's markets. And that's where this hundred million is definitely a positive infusion. And we're debating who will decide who gets the hundred million dollars. And those are two big questions here. Is it the government or does Google say, we're going to put a list together to see who utilizes us the best Um, There's a lot of people really worried if it's the government, it will go almost a lot of that will go to, well, what the government funds mostly already. And that's the CBC. And I watch a lot of CBC. I have no problem with the CBC, but I want to see the money distributed fairly. I think we all would. Right. Yeah, I I think one of the broader pictures that people are missing in this is that for years, big media companies have built a lot of what they're doing around a search engine like Google. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a coexistence that has existed, so a lot of funding has already gone into that. To deconstruct that would cost the media business a lot of money, already showing with uh, costing a lot of money. But Greg, $100 million a year... If you break that down, let's consider the fact that Google makes billions in search revenue alone. And so this idea that the $100 million is going to save the Canadian media business is ludicrous. Instead, what it's going to do is it's going to start to bring Google to the table more. I've been in situations, see, I'm in a very rare situation here, Greg, because I've I've worked in newsrooms my whole life before I turned into a consultant. I've seen massive mistakes being made. To your point, If you give this money to the senior leadership at current media organizations, they're not going to, you know, you're not putting yourself in a better situation to save media in Canada and save the relationships between people. You're instead giving money to the people that have made the mistakes in the first place. No, there's so many questions. It's not, you know, we can all relate even as parents or what our parents did to us. If if you ask them for money especially if it's a lot of money, they're going to ask you what you're going to do with it. And I don't know that media organizations are going to have all the answers or great answers 
that satisfy Google. And I think they're going to have to at some point in time, or Google's going to really sour on the concept of the deal. And also to that point, Greg, I think Google is going to be at the table sooner than you think. And so I think you're, we're going to see yeah. them embedded into news and information the way uh, traditional uh, you know, uh, news organizations start to deliver. I think there's going to, you know, wouldn't they benefit more if Greg B- Brady was at the table of a product meeting where he could discuss what he would need as a veteran in this business in order to Whoa. successfully use the, well, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I do, I do, where, yeah. <laughs> that's where I think we'll need to go rather than start to think of Google as just the place where links are going to be posted. Because the truth is that there's an immediate immediacy to this solution, which is that in the next two years is going to be an, an election in the U.S. There's worldwide problems going on right now. And Canadians want access to information and they use Google. Ninety percent of Canadians use Google yearly. You bet we do. You bet we do. Hey, let's keep talking about this deal. I loved your insight on it this morning, Mohit. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you, Greg. Mohit Rajan joining us, media expert. I think that's really insightful stuff there. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, Marcus Domenico is uh, vice chair of the Toronto Catholic Di- District School Board, and he's kind enough to join us now to talk about a few education issues. I know you caught some of uh, Stephen Lecce on our show yesterday, and uh, bottom lining it, I know there's been a lot of concern around the province when you hear about principles um, that almost are forbidden or at least greatly discouraged Marcus from communicating with their parents, especially about issues of safety and potential religious hate. That's a problem, isn't it? Yeah. Good morning, Greg. Uh, By the way, this is our last day to play golf. So get out there and do that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it is a big problem. It's a big problem. Uh, Parents have rights. Students have rights. Uh, administrators and school boards do their best, but we have to communicate when there's a problem in a school Mm. that involves safety. We have to communicate with these parents. And uh, I'm very disturbed by this story. Uh, I feel badly for the students, all of them, actually, all the students in the school. And certainly these moms that came forward are are very brave to do so, and I I believe they're spot on. When did we get here where a principal, I remember the principal when I went to school, Marcus, it's not that long ago. It really isn't. Or even parents 10 years ago would say, my kids in school, a principal was treated with reverence and they weren't always right. Um, And there would be sometimes back and forth between a parent and a principal about a kid's education. But you could call him or her up and say, explain this to me, what's going on? And he or she would call you. Are we losing that contact in, in, in some boards? Well, here in Ward 2, in Etobicoke Centre that I represent as a trustee, I am in constant contact with my principals. I think they do a phenomenal job, and it's a very difficult job, Greg. Lots of parents communicate directly with principals and with teachers. I don't think the board gets in the way of that or should get in the way of that in any sense. I think what's happened here is there, there is some sort of a PR issue coming from the top down at TDSB to micromanage very sensitive, and, and I, you know, I, I feel for them. It's an extremely sensitive issue. Yeah. How do you approach it? But you know what? You approach it by building trust and by being transparent. It's like any relationship, Greg, I believe. Trust and transparency leads to positive outcomes, not this sort of micromanaged secrecy. What are you seeing in your schools right now with where the temperature's at, Marcus, and, and the tension um, with the Israel-Hamas conflict? 
Well, I have not seen very much in the Catholic board. I think that because we are religion and are, uh, you know, we're not involved as much in the Middle East in that sense between uh, Arabs and Jews and those that support and have taken different political positions. Our position in the school board, Toronto Catholic District School Board, is to educate children to show empathy and love and to excel in education. But they won't always, they won't buy They won't always do what we educate them to do, right? They go rogue a few, they're kids. They go rogue a few times, don't they? Well, you know, I'm a father uh, and my wife and I, we've raised seven children. So we've seen literally everything you could imagine. Um, But yeah, we just do our best and schools are there to, to support children in their learning. That's a very political answer. (laughs) <laughs> it is yeah, it you, is did you did you want me to answer as a father or as a, as a oh no but I, I want you to tell you know, i want to hear as well what what you're seeing with teachers we've heard from within our sources with the tdsb and you saw it happen in peel region i know you commented yep. on it um yep. teachers and their social media we're hearing this about businesses everywhere real estate companies um you know private equity firms law firms they're telling their employees look your job's your job you, you, you don't treat your social media feed like a freaking talk show where you're all of a sudden a middle east expert um are, are is are you seeing any of that with your educators we have not seen it in the toronto catholic board i've read and i have commented you're absolutely right greg uh there have been incidents at tdsb at peel there's been, uh, if you follow on Twitter, an interesting page called Stop Anti-Semitism, you'll see reams and reams of people in the States in professions that have really said terribly, terribly inappropriate things. We have policies about use of social media by our staff. Your responsibility to be an ethical person does not end when you walk out of the classroom or out of the building. We expect you to perform and be the person that represents the Catholic board properly. I hear you. I hear you. Hey, I wish I had more time, but we got a million things on the go this morning, Marcus. Thanks for giving a look-see, and and I know we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Greg. Have a great day, my friend. You bet. Marcus DiDomenico uh, is a Toronto Catholic District School Board trustee. Just to put a bow on this, we talked about it yesterday. The TDSB says it takes these allegations of hate and racism very seriously. But one of the excuses, I love this one, and it's an excuse, not an explanation, is, well, we've moved away from telling parents about these incidents. We, we don't want students uh, vilified, and, and we don't want the reports about the students leading to copycat acts. Th- let's just think about that logic for a minute here. And I can be the most illogical human being on the planet, and people call me on it. You'd be amazed. How can it be a copycat if it's been done hundreds of thousands of times since the beginning of time, or at least in the last eight decades? This is really simple. If you know who did it, he or she, suspend them right away. Give them a, give them fair trial, fair hearing, fair, um, you know, fair due process, as we say. And, and this person then can be shielded from being vilified at the school. If you don't do anything, then that person walks down the hallway, no consequences, and people look and say, that's the girl that did that. That's the guy that did that. It doesn't pass the smell test. It's it's cowardly. It, it, there's not much. There's not many other ways. To me, I'm a. I love looking at both sides of issues, but there's not too many uh, things that would suggest to me that it's possible to look at both sides of this particular issue.